Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, this time last week I was bullish, chipper about football, and this morning I'm nursing a hangover and a point, uh, and I fear uh, an apology to everyone who watched Match the Day last night and the 26,000 people who sat through that yesterday. It was... Uh, you know, I think there should be a rule in football, Kieran, where five minutes before kickoff, the two managers have a word with each other. They just say to the ref, nil nil, and everyone goes to the pub. <laughs> <laughs> or, or stays in the pub. Or stays in the pub, exactly. At least you're, you're, we're recording this Sunday morning quite early so you can get off to watch Liverpool, Brighton. You're going to get all the goals that we didn't get yesterday. Very possibly. Yes, I, I spent yesterday morning, I went, went down the beach. It was absolutely glorious. Um, and then I came back and, and I and I became a good citizen. Did you? Uh, we we just got home, and uh, one of the neighbours uh, sort of stuck out at the door. Says, uh, said to the brownies, "Can I borrow your husband?" Ooh, we thought, oh, yeah, it's like so pampas grass around here. But I thought this is this is intriguing. Um, and the brownies said, "Okie dokes," um, and I turned it, and uh, they'd been invaded by a very by a very cranky magpie who, oh. who had been throughout the whole house and was busy doing ploppies all over Ooh. the place and and they, they she, she didn't fancy having a go at it so they're, they're quite they're quite ferocious they're bigger than you think a magpie when you get up close to the buggers um so there was i armed with a tea towel um so I didn't, I didn't have a big butterfly net um and i went and caught this magpie and and set it free um, so, so all's well that ended well. So, I, I am the official magpie hunter of Sussex. Well, well done. Uh, a, uh, Kieran, A, uh, all magpies are cranky. They're, <laughs> yes. they're a cranky. If, if the bird world has uh, football in it, then the magpie will be the groundsman of, <laughs> of the football world. <laughs> and B, what you, how, how have you got a butterfly net? Well, no, I didn't have a butterfly net. That's why I used a tea towel. Oh, you used a teaser? You did? I yeah, see. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah, because uh, that's the obvious replacement for a butterfly, and that is a tea towel. <laughs> yes. Of course it is. Yeah, I once, uh, when, it, when when Ed was younger, I, I tried to persuade him that the, you know, one for sorrow, two for joy, that that went up much higher. That if you saw 26 magpies, you know, your granny would be arriving. Uh, and if you saw 32 <laughs> magpies, Ireland would lose the Rugby World Cup. So he didn't fall for it. Um, the show's been going on quite some time, Kieran. We've yet to talk about football finance, so shall we carry on and do that? It's questions day. But we, two, we do have um, two quite big stories, one uh, local, one global, but both important in their own way to fans of the beautiful game. Uh, first of all, Scunthorpe United, Kieran, the takeover has completed. What, what do we know about the, the new owner of Scunthorpe? Uh, well, the new owner, Michelle Harness, uh, she used to be the commercial manager yeah. uh, at Scunthorpe United for around about 15 years. And I think recently she has been a director. Um, I have reached out to to try to get her on the show. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think she's quite a private person and, and she just wants to she just wants to get on with the job. But we've, yeah. we will try and get somebody from Scunthorpe. Um, there was an interesting press release. I, I think it's fair to say that it was it was pretty brief. Yeah. Um, and uh, it made reference to the assistance given by the 
uh, former owner David Hilton. But there's a couple of interesting phrases there. Uh, first of all, that they they suggested that he they hope he finds peace away from football. Yeah. Um, I David probably best not to come back to football <laughs> uh, was the way I interpreted that. And uh, secondly, that he agreed to uh, wipe all monies that he'd personally invested into the club. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that should be quite easy. Uh, yeah, if, if I put nothing into a club, I'd quite easily, quite happily take nothing out of it as well. But it, it, as you say, Kieran, it's quite a strange press release, in particular for a layman like me, because it, it seemed to imply that he basically, that no money had changed hands, that he'd essentially given her the club and that he would help facilitate any further you know, move for the ground and it was all very amicable and amiable. Have I got that right? I think the takeover part probably is right. um, uh, not least connected with the fact that yeah the wages hadn't been paid the previous week by all accounts. So, oh, okay. um, and I mean the good news is that it, it does appear that we're not going to be creating another Berry because you know we've said the saddest thing about Berry is you've now got two factions. You've got yeah. you've got the awkward squad still, yeah, who, who are still there, still causing a lot of grief. And you've got the majority of the fans, and the the Scunthorpe fan base had become split. But I think a lot of people have said, "Okay, you know, we just want to move forward." And, and the great thing, you know, on this, yesterday, which was Saturday, um, over five thousand people attending a match. This is the sixth tier yeah. of of English football. Yeah, that's that's just how much an individual club means to people. So great, you know, we we hope they go forwards. Uh, they're still under embargo from the National League. Um, in in respect of other issues, so yeah, there are still um, some outstanding uh, payments, I think, due to HMRC and so on. But that is being addressed. So hopefully, that embargo will be lifted, and uh, good luck to them for the rest of the season. It, it it looks, Kieran, as though the next Euros will be held in England and Ireland. Mm-hmm. And it, lo- it looks like UEFA have been quite open about the fact that they're, they're trying to refill the coffers post COVID by giving it to countries that have a solid infrastructure and where the games are guaranteed to sell out. But the next, uh, the 2030 World Cup, Kieran, this is a strange one for me, considering that if you go onto FIFA's website, it's only a couple of lines in before they talk about their uh, responsibility to the environment and how important it is that football makes itself sustainable in an environmental way. And then they announce (laughs) the location for the 2030 World Cup. Yes, uh, three continents, yeah. six countries. That means six automatic entrants yeah. into the finals, which which goes with the territory. Um, the justification, I mean, it, and it is the centenary, so I can I can understand uh, Uruguay wanting to be involved here, but yeah. um, Uruguay uh, and Paraguay and Argentina, yeah. um, the the three countries. Um, have been allocated one match each. Yeah. So those could be the three opening matches, presumably involving those three countries, you would expect, which means presumably that they can't be drawn against each other. Um, so that, that's, that seems a bit strange. Um, I, I, was, I was talking to somebody from Chile um, on, on Thursday night after this had been announced. And he was going, well, we'd originally put in for a, a joint hosting with those three countries, so yeah. we just been to be you know, quietly kicked into the into the long grass, uh, which which seems very harsh. And then you've got Spain, Portugal, and Morocco uh, representing UEFA and Africa. 
And you go, well, it, it just does seem very strange. And, you know, as, as far as FIFA's commitment to sustainability is concerned, yeah, that it, 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 it was tokenism at the 2022 World Cup when you actually saw what actually happened. And I suspect it's exactly the same as far as this one is concerned. Um, but, of course, it does mean that because you cannot have the same uh, confederations hosting consecutive World Cups, it rules out uh, Europe, Africa, and South yeah. America. Uh, given that North America or North and Central America is hosting the 2026 20, World Cup, that means there's a big Asia-shaped hole yeah. in 2034. And what a surprise within hours of this announcement. Uh, Saudi Arabia said, oh, by the way, we quite like to host the, the World Cup in 2034. So as always, when it comes to FIFA, it's, it's all to do with power and money and the, 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 the Machiavellian way that things uh, take place in FIFA. I don't think they're even making any effort to try to hide things. You know, at least, <laughs> at, least, at least they they had sort of uh, an element of denial with regards to the bribes for the 2018 and 2022 yeah. allocation of the World Cups. Um, and you know, there was a token investigation in which very restricted information was made available to the investigators. So, um, yeah. That's, that's that's where it is. Yeah, yeah, but but we'll like all World Cups. Once the tournament starts, we'll forget about it. Oh lordy, yeah, of course. I mean, it's as you say, Saudi Arabia have, have um, indicated interest. Shall we say? I was, I was trying to find the the best way of saying that. Saudi Arabia have indicated interest in the twenty thirty four World Cup. A couple of people have mentioned. Australia, hmm. but there are also people saying, Kieran, that with the huge number of games now taking part, with the number of teams expanded uh, so highly, that the days of one country World Cups are are long gone, and that even Saudi Arabia, with all their wealth and infrastructure, it, a, a World Cup would be too much for them. Even Australia, the, the size of that country, and that in, in future, it's only going to be multi-country models. Well, that that's that, that. There is some credence in that, but you should. You know, we we've managed to hold Olympic tournaments across three or four weeks oh, in single true. countries. That's true. Yeah. Um, there's not there's not that many people travelling. You know, it, it it is vastly overblown. Um, I, I think in terms of uh, you know, the ability to host in in a variety of countries. It's good that smaller countries with with a multi country model can still can still host. So I think that is a positive. So I've got nothing against it in theory. It's it. This is all to do with politics. Yeah. Although we've seen with Saudi Arabia that with a lot of the sporting events they've been having there, boxing in particular, people will travel there, and they yeah. will they will they will find uh, a very well established infrastructure, good hotels, and the the World Cup experience will be. Very interesting and perfectly well well run, but again, you yes. can't, as you say, you can't help thinking that there is politics involved. That, um, and also, Saudi Arabia has sort of hinted that uh, oh, alcohol might be available. Yeah. Um, now, yeah, look, you know, you know my view. I don't drink alcohol, so I, I think if you if you go into watch a football tournament, well, if you have to give up booze for a week or so, then then you know. I'm sure people can do that, um, but remember what happened in Qatar. Qatar said, "Oh yes, yes, it will. You will be able to get alcohol at the tournament. You'll be able to get alcohol at the tournament." And then two days before the tournament starts, "Oh, we've changed their mind." And mm -hmm. people goes, "Oh, they've changed their mind." So yeah, we know what's going to happen. 
Yeah, and I, I imagine Heineken will be. You know, there's all sorts of politics responses as well, isn't there? So, but mm. let's 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 save that for nearer the World Cup, Kieran, and yes. let's get back to questions. As always, we've got some very interesting questions. Uh, and the first one comes from Zach Dalton. And again, this is one of those questions that I really like, Kieran, because it's something that we've talked about a lot, but without ever sort of explaining how it might actually happen in practice. And Zach Dalton says, how are fan-owned clubs actually set up? I sometimes picture a group of 10 men. That's, it's getting very Kevin Keegan there, Zach. Mm. <laughs> I, I sometimes picture a group of 10 men in full kit shouting over a boardroom table, which I doubt is really the case. I assume they hire fully qualified staff in all roles. But I'm just wondering if those staff members need to support the club, as if all the big decisions are being made by staff who don't support the club. Is it really fan-owned? Does the board need to primarily support the club to make it fan-owned? Is there an official difference between the club being fan-owned or a club just being owned by a large number of shareholders from the local area? I'm particularly interested in that question about staff members and needing to support the club because people... Uh, like like you, Kieran, get constantly asked by young people about how you get to work in football. Hmm. And they're always surprised when they discover that not everybody at a particular football club supports that football club. So I'm interested in the answer to that question in particular. Yes, Zach. Um, well, to, to answer that particular question, you want the best people in in positions and the best people don't have to necessarily support that particular football club. So... Um, what will happen is that if we take a look at member-owned clubs, and, and, and they, they range in size and, they, and, and uh, in culture, yeah, we've got the likes of Exeter. In fact, we've got people from Exeter coming on the show pretty soon. Um, we've got AFC Wimbledon, uh, yeah, both of those in the EFL. We've got Chesterfield in the NFL, so, uh, so the, the, the National League, not the NFL. Um, and, and in Scotland, quite a few clubs have gone down the fan-owned route, uh, you know, ranging from Berwick Rangers to the likes of Motherwell and so on. And it is quite common overseas, but in a slightly different way. So, so Barcelona, in theory, are a member. You know, they're a socios base. And if you go to Brazil, you know, giant clubs, the likes of Flamengo and Fluminense, um, you know, they are they are all not-for-profit sort of community clubs. But it, it does then very much vary. In theory, what you will have is a, a, a effectively a membership scheme where the members vote for the executives at the club. Now, it could be that those executives are, of course, also fans, or it could be that you would appoint the uh, the board of directors from the membership, and then the board of directors might appoint an independent chief executive who has got experience of operating in the football industry, whereas the individual members, you know, they are they're devoted fans, but they might say, "Well, actually, I've I've got some gaps in my in my knowledge uh, in terms of sort of yeah, the administration, the governance issues that that go along with ensuring that you've got compliance with the rules of the EFL or the National League or the Football Association and so on." So I, I would always say, get the best person for the job. Um, the danger of having a fan orientated board um, is that it can become too emotional. And, and I think being able to detract yourself from the emotional side of football is is a good thing at, at senior executive level. Um, it's also a difficult thing. So yeah, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but you know, there, and what do you do? 
with with clubs like Brentford and Norwich, where you could say, well, they're fan owned. Yeah, you got you know you got Matthew Benham at Brentford. You've got Delia Smith. You know, historically, yeah, they they were fans who happened to be successful in their own field, who who have gone on to to buy the club. Um, so you know, that's that's an individual fan owned club. So there, there's lots of different tiers and, and different organisations. But in general, I, th- I think for what Zach was referring to, it would be you pay for, uh, to be a member of the club. That would give you certain rights in, in terms of being able to vote in the executives. Um, and quite often, sort of that initial enthusiasm sort of disappears and you, and you get back to, you know, to, to moaning about who, who the manager's picking at left back and you know giving, giving the, the poor linesman a load of grief on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, and uh, there's a sort of technical difference because there's quite a few fan-owned clubs. They they don't have a, a chair or a chairperson, but the, the chair of the supporters' trust, I think this is the case for Exeter, the chair of the supporters' club is the, is the de facto, the supporters' association is the sort of de facto chairman of the club, isn't it? So there's a slight difference there. But uh, annoyingly, Kieran, um, one of the chaps who works as a manager of the Palace for Life Foundation is a, is a Brighton fan. Um, and even more annoyingly, he's really good at his job. That is, that is a- I know, but it's 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 it still doesn't stop it being hilarious when I pretend to ignore him in meetings. <laughs> uh, well, that's that's my interpretation. <laughs> I think the other senior manager's uh, interpretation of hilarious is slightly different to mine. Talking to the foundation, Kieran, I know this is a shameless plug. Um, this time next week, I will be recovering from the twenty-six mile marathon march that I'm doing with many other people to raise money for the foundation, to, to make life-changing choices and decisions for young people in South London. So if anybody wants to sponsor me, uh, if they go to Just Giving and look for FYP or five-year plan, that's I'm uh, walking it with the lads from that wonderful fanzine. That would be very generous of them. And at the risk of embarrassing somebody called the Baron, Kieran, someone called the Baron has made a rather generous donation. Um, somebody <laughs> called Producer Guy, yet to dip his hand in his pocket, hashtag Just Saying. Um, next question comes from. Sorry. I also have to point out that somebody called the Baroness isn't aware of that generous donation. Ah, the Baroness doesn't listen to the pod anymore, does she? No, no, she gets too embarrassed. <laughs> Although she might tune in to see whether her hero mentions his magpie work. I bet she was proud. I bet she was. Re- I mean, she, I know she was. She was. She was. She I know was. she's proud of you all the time, Kieran. But, but facing off. I, I like. I'm, I'm looking forward to the gifts, Kieran. Like, remember when you talked about taking on the whole of Brentford? And people, someone sent in a, <laughs> someone sent a, a brilliant picture of your face transposed on someone ripping their shirt off. I'm, I'm looking forward to similar. I mean, that 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 magpie didn't stand a chance. He didn't know who he was dealing with, did he? <laughs> I, I I spoke to him about amortization for five minutes. and He fell asleep. So Wait, I, know, I, I then legged him. I then threw him out the window. You know what's going to happen in the in the magpie world? The magpies will be saying, if you see one accountant. That's one account, one, one for sorrow, two. Well, if you don't, you one don't for sorrow, two for sorrow, I think. <laughs> you don't want to see four accountants, say the magpies. Um, Matt Little is a Carlisle United fan, and Matt Little said Carlisle sold a young and very promising defender, Jared Branthwaite, to Everton. And fans were told that there was a host of add-ons included in the sale. He was subsequently loaned by Everton to PSV Eindhoven and played in the Champions League for them. If a loan fee was paid to Everton by PSV, would Carlisle be entitled to any of this via the sell-on clauses? Um, if one of our clauses was a fee to be paid if and when Jared played in the Champions League, 
will this have been met or activated when he did so for PSV on loan rather than for Everton, as happened when Coutinho won the Champions League with Bayern on loan for Barcelona? It's an interesting question, Kieran, and I I guess you'll have spoken to your secret um, lawyer who will no doubt have used his, his catchphrase, it depends. Yes, that's what would have happened. But instead, <laughs> I decided to speak to our secret agent. Oh, great. We haven't had the secret agent on for yeah, a while. Yes, the secret agent. And I, and I quote verbatim, yeah. uh, the transfer agreement would state playing for the new club, in this case, Everton, in the Champions League. So um, a loan to another club wouldn't count. Oh, uh, okay. you know, nearly, nearly all domestic transfers would do that. Now, it could be that Carlisle had, if they'd inserted what can only be described as a cunning clause into the the contract, um, then that might have been the case. But uh, our secret agent said, highly unlikely. Okay, we can't give his name, but he's, he's 007 is, uh, is his nickname. Oh, I, was, I thought you were hinting that his actual name was James Bond. In that case, that would have been a good one. <laughs> Um, I really like this next question, Kieran. It, it made me chuckle. Um, and there's a certain degree of affection in this question, which I, yes, I, I, I got quite sentimental about. Uh, it's from Adam and Jacob Roper. Um, and Adam says, My son Jacob takes great enjoyment from imposing large fines on players in Football Manager if they put so much <laughs> as a, a foot up. I don't know how old uh, Jacob is. It's, given the waiting list, he, he may be married by now. But I'm, I'm rather hoping that Jacob is, is five because I like the idea of a really cross five-year-old finding a loads of players in Football Manager for wearing headphones on the coach. Um, Adam says, after Jao Felix's rather funny red card on his debut for Chelsea last season, Jacob asked me whether Chelsea would be able to find the player as he was on loan from another club. And I have absolutely no idea if that was a thing. Can you help us out with this? Well... Here, um, our both our secret lawyer and our secret agent um, have been of assistance. And this is a classic case of it depends. <laughs> Normally, when you sign for a new club, you will be signing a slightly different contract and, and that will set out the terms and conditions and the obligations in respect of all of the parties. So therefore, it could be that you would be subject to to fines for inappropriate behaviour, um, and provided that th- those those fines were not significantly more harsh than for the host club, the chances are that yeah the player and the agent would just say yeah it's okay you know, I'm I'm not going to be an idiot yeah it's not not my intention um, and we'll just go along with them, and I think you know in terms of uh, dressing room harmony that would make a lot of sense because. What you don't want is a player coming from another club on loan, gets a red card, and he goes, well, I don't give a toss. I'm I'm unaffected. And then the centre-half goes, well, hold on. I I got one two weeks ago, and it cost me me a fortnight's wages. You you can just see the bad feeling that it would cause. So I think there's likely, for the sense of harmony and the sake sake of consistency, and also encouraging um, good behaviour, that it, it it is likely to be applied. Yeah, I, I hope that um, settles that for you, Jacob. I like the cut of Jacob's jib, I have to say. <laughs> I look forward to following his career with some interest. Now, this next question, Kieran, I think is a fascinating one. Is this a corker? It is. And I, I would have thought it was 
purely theoretical, hypothetical, were it not for the fact that it turns out this may have happened. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it comes from Ben Archer. Uh, Ben says, I was wondering if there were any FIFA rules regarding using a potential buyer of a club, using due diligence to gain financial knowledge about the club, and then using that knowledge to advantage themselves elsewhere. Uh, Here in Australia, there have been accusations that Orangan, and that's uh, Ben Archer's uh, description, I hasten to add, secret lawyer, if you're listening, Orangan named Bill Papas claimed he was trying to buy an A-League club and underwent due diligence at several clubs, including my own, Newcastle Jets, but then used the knowledge of player wages that he discovered to convince them to join him at Xanthi FC in Greece. While Mr Papas is currently facing charges for fraud in both Greece and Australia, and Xanthi's future is looking uncertain, what could potentially stop him from doing this again, or a more competent business person from acting in a similar manner? So we often use the mortgage uh, analogy, Kieran. So hmm. this is sort of similar to saying, well, I'm interested in buying your house and you have a good look around the house. And basically, you're casing the house for your mate to come in and and rob it. So uh, it it does think I I don't know quite how much information you get. If you you say, I want to buy this club, I don't know how much the the, the selling club would give you in terms of information wise. Mm. But it does seem that it's open to exploitation, doesn't it? Potentially. It is, but for me, it seems a very expensive way of oh, okay. going about this particular line of business. So, so what would normally happen is, let's say that you were interested in buying a club. You went along to the the current owner and you said, "Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, you know that it's up for sale." I said, "Right, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a credible buyer." And the first thing that they're going to say to you then is, "Okay," in which case we will grant you access to our data room if you pay a non-refundable deposit of X. Oh, right. So, okay. so th- this, this is a way of getting rid of the tyre kickers. Right, okay. Who come around. So, so therefore, it, the chances are it's going to cost you money. Then, to be honest, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to employ you know, some credible – so you're going to have to get your finance department or you get some accountants and lawyers to, to take a look at all of the assets and all of the contracts, including – it has to be fair – it has to be said, would be the employment contracts because you want to know what you, what obligations you're taking on for how long, how much it's going to potentially cost you and so on. So, so that that is due diligence, yeah, and that is, that is a fairly common facet. Um, if you do that, there would also be an obligation to sign some form of non-disclosure agreement such that you would not use that information for commercial purposes so, so you know, in respect of the, the allegations against Mr. Papas, you know, he potentially he would have been in breach of contract there. I, I've got to be honest, the, the much cheaper way of going around dealing with that is having a word with the player's agent, because because they are gossips, and you, and, you, and, you, and you can find out you can find out from three or four agents. You know, what, what's the going rate at Club X? And and they'll go, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll chat with you because potentially, you know, that's that's part of their role, you know, and. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not criticising agents here, but yeah, it, it is a yeah. You you know lots of showbiz gossip. Mm. I know lots of amortisation gossip, <laughs> and football agents know lots of football gossip. And yeah, you know, yeah, pe- yeah. Pe- people talk, and they tend to talk in their own circles. But you know, it's it's not football. Football's a gossip industry, um, just as all others are, and and it, and it is you know. It, 
you know, as, as we've often, you know, we, we've described some clubs as, as Brownbergs in the sense that we we can describe 10% of the, the the muck at the top and the 90% is which we've found out from talking to people in the game, talking to journalists, you know, talking to other interested parties, which we feel is not appropriate or we feel that from a legal standpoint that it we don't want to put you know we don't want to produce a guy or ourselves at risk by saying things which which we can't necessarily back up um so uh it, it could take it could be the case ben but i honestly think that uh it would be a very expensive way of go, going about finding information going back to the first part of uh, ben's question are there any specific fifa rules which preclude this i don't think there are but i think you will find that if I was the seller of the club, I would put uh, as part of the due diligence that there would, in order to protect myself, that you cannot share this information with third parties. In doing so would be a breach of contract and there will be financial consequences of doing so. In the unlikely event that I did approach Steve Parrish to buy Crystal Palace Football Club, and he would certainly be demanding proof that I had the funds. <laughs> um, would I be expecting to see every bit of information? Would I be expected to get access to all the data about every financial aspect of the club? Or are there things that would be considered so commercially sensitive that the buying, the selling club would, would legitimately be able to withhold? If, if he was looking to sell the club... Then it's you know, it's exactly the same as you or I looking yeah you know, going back to our, our we would use our house as an analogy. If somebody's coming to seriously think about buying my house or your house, then then you've got to show them everything. You've got to show them electricity bills. You've got to you know, you've got an obligation to say, well, you know, has there been any structural repairs uh, in in the last X years and so on, and and in terms of ongoing contracts, you know, you, you might have a it would wouldn't be the case case for a personal level, but. Yeah, if, if if you're leaving behind, um, you know, the sofa, and you'd bought that on HP, you say, well, you you didn't have to take on that contract, uh, yeah, and things like that. So, um, you, you would you would have uh, an obligation. You'd have, in theory, access to to practically everything. Because how on earth can you come up with an appropriate price to pay for the football club unless you know exactly what you're buying in terms of assets and exactly what you're inheriting in terms of contractual obligations. Right, and, and uh, also presumably, then, if I in, in this theoretical me buying Crystal Palace, once I'd paid the money to get access to the data, I'm then paying more money to somebody like you because the first thing I would do is is to get in because I wouldn't understand it, and I presume there are some people uh, with business experience who wouldn't have the necessary financial experience to analyse those data. So, are you then spending more money on getting a team of people to go over those figures with a fine tooth comb? Yes, if you take a look at any major M&A, mergers and acquisition deal, you've got a, a nominal acquirer and then they will have a team of professional uh, acquaintances, which, you know, depending on what the nature yeah if we take a look at the Manchester United deal for example there's going to be bankers involved accountants lawyers um, and, and other professionals so the, the the costs start mounting up very quickly because you know we, we've seen in in the case of the administrations of clubs like Derby and Wigan just how much these people are charging on an hourly basis I, I didn't like the way you said professional acquaintances there Kieran you 
You, you came over very southeast <laughs> London again, as you do every now and again. <laughs> Uncle Terry would use the phrase professional acquaintances. Um, our next question, Kieran, is one of those questions that uh, is a boon for both of us. We both enjoy this sort of question because it has a level of technical detail that you really like to dive into, and it gives me five minutes to go and make a cup of tea. It um, does. <laughs> it comes from Ed Pennington. Um, I know I'll, I have to concentrate reading the question, Kieran, let alone listening to the answer. Ed Pennington says, the principle of amortisation in general kind of makes sense to me, but it never <laughs> seems quite right to me in the case of transfers. Yes, you buy their registration, but you could also say you're buying a one-off opportunity to offer them a first contract. So why should you amortise it over the length of that contract? My question is, what's the worst that would happen if you only allowed football clubs to amortise transfer fees over one year instead of UEFA's five-year cap? FFP is already averaging over three years, so it wouldn't make losses too bumpy and clubs wouldn't be incentivised to commit to longer contracts to keep everything together. Yes, I think this is a, this is an intriguing one. This is actually to do with amortisation is an application of what's known as international financial reporting standards. These are the rules which apply to all transactions for all companies or, or in the UK. We've got our, our, our local version of those as well. Um, so... What are you doing when you you buy a player? Well, as, as Ed rightly points out, what you're doing is that you are giving somebody else compensation to acquire the registration of that player. And then the length of the contract gives you a degree of protection from anybody else taking your player. So it is that compensation stroke protection fee that is being amortised over the life of the contract. So it would seem if, if I'm getting... If I'm signing Kai Shado for 100 million on a on a 10 year contract, then it works out as 10 million a year in terms of effectively you know, that is the protection fee. Nobody else can take my player away. Um, could you do it over one year? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that would only take FIFA. It would only take the Premier League to go and change their rules to say that for our internal profitability and sustainability purposes, we are going to limit uh, amortization to a single year. What would the result of that be? It would mean that it would be very difficult for Chelsea to spend a billion pounds in a year and still be in compliance. So you could say it it would therefore encourage um, a more sustainable approach, especially with the fairly ludicrous situation here. Chelsea sold Mason Mount to Manchester United for, for £60 million. Um, and because he was an academy player, that meant that they had £60 million going into this year's pot um, for, for FFP purposes. Um, they, they signed Kai Shado, let's you know, £100 million for on an eight, on a, it was an eight-year contract, so that's £12.5 million uh, a year. So that effectively means that for every Mason Mount that is sold, you can sign almost five Kai Shadows and you go and still be in balance. And and intuitively, that just does seem uh, a bit daft. So having a one-year amortisation fee uh, for FFP purposes, I think it would create a more balanced and a more nuanced transfer market. But the clubs don't want that because if you've got a new owner, what they want to do, as we've seen in the case of the, the Clear Lake Capital Todd Bowie takeover of Chelsea, is spend, spend, spend. Fans, and, I, and I've never really understood this mentality, fans seem to 
get a sense of achievement if they see their club spending lots and lots of money because because we're living sort of our lives vicariously in reflection of the activities of the football club. So in terms of uh, your personal self-worth, many people like to be associated with certain clubs that spend a lot of money. So so that would be tempered. And then we would come to another big stakeholder, which which is the media. Now, you know, what, what do the media spend? They spend half their time talking about football matches, but they actually spend the other half of their time talking about transfer fees and rumours. And I think this would curtail um, the uh, the extent of some clubs' ambitions because you would effectively have to have a, a one-out, one-in uh, sort of sense of mentality in, in terms of the overall values of the fees. Um, so it, it could take place, Ed. You'd then have to get agreement with UEFA and FIFA because it would certainly put... Uh, English clubs at a significant disadvantage compared to the other clubs which are under the UEFA banner who are using this this five-year cap in terms of amortisation. But it, it's an interesting one um, and it's an intriguing one. And it, you know, I've, I've often highlighted the anomaly in terms of the way that we, we sell players and we book the profits immediately and you buy players and you spread the profits. It, it does appear to be an inconsistency. Um, inconsistency in football... Uh, applies both off the pitch and on it, though. Hmm. You could you, you could quite clearly hear the phrase "spend some money" yesterday at Sellers Park as yet another of our <laughs> players limped off, clutching their hamstring. The sound of twenty thousand people saying "spend some expletive money" insert name of club owner here. <laughs> it's an yes. We're looking for we're looking to do another couple of nostalgia pods, uh, Kieran, probably to broadcast over the Christmas period. And how lovely that I get to say Christmas. Because it's, it's coming, Kieran. This, this sun's going to be disappearing eventually. Curse it! <laughs> um, but one of our first nostalgia pods was about the, the Trevor Francis transfer, the first million pound transfer. Would Nottingham Forest back then have paid the full amount at once? Because it, it's it strikes me when we were growing up, Kieran, that the, the idea of spreading transfer fees over a number of years wasn't one that existed. Or, or am I wrong? As amateurs, has always been in football. No, amortisation only came into football when there was a change of uh, rules, which was around about, I think it was around about 1995, 1996. So before that, you didn't used to have it. Um, So it it wouldn't have applied. I mean, I think there's, but I think you you need to separate out amortisation, which is best described as accounting nonsense, (laughs) with with cash flow, which is sort of your contractual obligations. Um, So if we take a look at, for example, at uh, the James Madison deal between Leicester and Spurs. Um, Leicester have agreed with Spurs that there's going to be three instalments, one paid immediately and two paid on an annual basis. So so that James Madison will be paid for with, within 24 months of him signing for the club. But he signed, I think he signed a five-year contract, so his amortisation will be over five years. The cash flow will be over two. Um, and I think Spurs have got, yeah, we don't talk about football, I think they've got one of the bargains of, uh, of of the summer market, I just just love watching James Madison, and also the fact that he loves a wind up. Yeah, he's a wonderful player. I'm going to ask you this next question, Kieran, and then I'm going to walk over and shut all the windows so we can uh, the remnants of last night's party from across the road. They've obviously woken up 
and decided <laughs> to carry on. So I'll ask you the question and go and shut the window. Um, Rich Massingham has this question. Strong name. This week's strongest name so far. Rich Massingham says, last season, Colo Torre was sacked by Wigan after just 59 days, which got me thinking, do football managers have a three-month probation like most other employees? And therefore, will Wigan have avoided having to pay him off? Um. It depends. So guess who, I, guess who uh-huh. I've been talking to? Um, if, if I was advising the manager, um, I would say don't accept any such clause in a contract because there could be matters completely outside of your control. But sometimes managers are desperate to take a job and, and they will accept that uh, it, it is, it's a very high-risk profession and, and that therefore they, they, they want to get their, their, effectively their foot in the door as far as a place in football management is concerned. And, and we'll take what, whatever the clauses are in the contract. So it comes down to the contract itself. It will be, I think, unusual if you sign a three-year contract to, to be allowed to be sacked within three months, um, unless it was for, for gross misconduct or something of that nature. But uh, never say never in the world of football. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm a great believer that the, the cult of the manager is, is vastly overplayed. I mean, some, some do make changes, but if you've, if you've inherited a squad, especially during you know, halfway through the season, there is very much a limited uh, ability to change things around. Now, Kieran, we know from experience that our good friend Andy Holt, the owner of Accrington Stanley, has many issues with the streaming service in football and so do a lot of fans and a lot of the fans issue is how does it work and Rob Harrison is a classic example Rob Harrison says I'm a huge fan of Dorking Wanderers in the National League well I live in the USA and that has made it a bit more difficult to watch my team so that's a slight understatement there Rob I think the, 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 the old USA Dorking commute on a Saturday morning but with the launch of the National League TV streaming service, it has become easier. I have heard, says Rob, that when you pay for a match day pass, monthly subscription or half season pass, that the money is split 60% to the team you have designated as the one you support, 15% to operation cost, and the rest into a pool to be distributed evenly at a later date. Is my understanding correct? Right. I, I've, I've searched high and wide in respect of this. I can't find the exact numbers, but I think Rob is, is broadly right. And, and I, I think also that the National League deserve a lot of credit for, for coming up with these innovative schemes. Um, I think this is partly on the, you know, it's partly been driven by what we've seen happy at, happen at Wrexham because, you know, Reynolds and McElhenney have created, um, uh, a cult interest on Wrexham, and that's that's not a criticism at all. I think what they've done is absolutely amazing. A global and the people, global cult interest, here, really. yes, yeah. and therefore everybody can potentially benefit for it. So you can become, or yeah, when Wrexham were in the National League, you you could become a nominal Wrexham fan, um, and, and uh, you you would have been able to a uh, have money going towards them, b you know helping the the National League in terms of its compliance costs and its obligations uh, towards running the service. And then other clubs would have benefit, benefited as well. Um, so this was very much as far as the um, the overseas audiences were concerned. With regards to the domestic National League TV pass, um, again, that, that is in operation, but it only tends to operate um, outside of the 3pm blackout period. 
So uh, you know, your club, your club does benefit. And, and if you are, you know, for want of a better word, an exile, or you are a, a new fan and you've you, you've seen what's happened and you you want to you want to become attached to an individual club, you know that the club that you you, you now support is is going to be the, the biggest beneficiary of this. And so, if you support a League One or League Two team, Kieran, is the, the streaming money distributed in a different way? It, it's broadly the same. Okay, you 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 buy a you can buy a pass, and again, this will be for you know it, it is restricted to the the games because of the blackout rules and so on. Um, but your club is the biggest beneficiary of of your support, and and that's that is quite important for uh, you know those clubs that have big big fan bases. And this is why you know, the likes of Andy Holt says, "Look, you know, we're, we're struggling enough. Um, this is going to increase the imbalance yeah. between the home team and the away team." And I think you know, one of Andy's reservations has has been, and I absolutely understand where he's coming from. Yeah, we, we've been to Accrington; we had an absolutely fantastic time there um, as uh, as Shawadi Wadi's warm up act. Um, <laughs> but they 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 are looking on a saturday afternoon to to make money from selling tickets to away fans and also those away fans you know spending money on on pies and pints and so on if it reduces the away attendances then you can understand andy's concern and i think that's that yeah you know, things should be fair and proportionate in it, when it comes to the distribution uh, a penultimate question kieran asked you to give a pricey of something, and, and I'm not sure whether a pricey of this is appropriate or uh, yes. possible, to be perfectly honest. It comes from Warren Rubinstein. Uh, Warren says there have been several stories over the last year or so about corruption in the awarding of TV contracts via FIFA for World Cup events. Can you give us a summary of where this corruption has taken place? Right. I mean, we, we could have a whole history lesson with regards to this. So I think if, if we go back to the the 1990s, you had the likes of Havelange and Te- Texera, who who did take large sums. More recently, that there have been accusations with regards to uh, Combicol, which is sort of you know, the, the the Caribbean uh, federation, uh, and our, our very good friend, non-friend, uh, Jack Warner, who... Uh, who, who is uh, effectively a prisoner on the island of Trinidad because there is a, a warrant held out for him by the uh, by the FBI, I think it's the FBI, in respect of various bribe takings. But but to sort of try to sort of put it into some form of context, we've also got um, executives um, of one of Fox's companies who have been accused through a myriad of offshore companies you know, or, you know there's there's nothing there's nothing crude about it these things tend to be quite sophisticated it's not a case of television company a paying executive b five million pounds or five million dollars is more likely to be the case and then they win a contract it's it's all done in in very very shady means um so there have been accusations for the the allocation of some of the uh, Copper Libertadores, but also the, the FIFA World Cup competitions. And you can understand the, the benefits to the TV companies because they end up paying a lower fee overall for the rights. The, the person being bribed gets a large wedge. 
Um, FIFA, FIFA are the losers here. Um, and it's not often that I say that when it comes to money. Um, when when there are when there are locals, if if you take a look also at the awarding of the the twenty eighteen and the twenty twenty two World Cup, which which resulted in I would say the biggest broom and the biggest carpet of all time, uh, even though there was a formal investigation, um, a lot of the information was effectively redacted. Or in the case of the Russian government, they said all of the computers which we used to uh, put together the 2018 World Cup, um, we, we we hired them and we gave them back to the, the company that we, we leased them from. So therefore, we don't have access to any information. And that was duly noted by FIFA. Go, oh, uh, okay, that's fine. Oh, well, these, these things happen, don't they? Um, so th- there, is, there, there is a myriad of stories. Uh, ultimately, w- whenever you've got large sums of money involved and uh, bureaucrats, th- there is the temptation uh, in football for, for for money to pass hands. And people will say, well, yeah, bribery and corruption takes place everywhere. And, and it does. Um, and I think the people that are most miffed are the people who did bribe the likes of <laughs> Jack Warner, uh, who, who then turns around and says, yeah, but he didn't bribe me enough. So I took a bigger bribe from somebody else. Imagine taking the moral high ground because your bribe wasn't as big as somebody else's bribe. That Russian computer thing is a little bit like uh, Rishi Sunak this week saying, I'd love to give the inquiry access to all my WhatsApps, but I I change my phone every month and and I forgot to back it up. So whereupon Mrs. Sunak should be saying, why are you changing your phone every month? Um, Mm. That's a takeaway from there. I mean, the the difficulty for the people investigating this, and we do mention it in our our book that's coming out on Thursday, Kieran, um, the the FIFA and their slightly lax attitude to this this sort of thing, um, as they would say in Father Ted. Um, (laughs) But the trouble is it happens via second, third and fourth parties. It's a very complicated trail. So even for, for people like the FBI... The, probably the people in the world with the most experience of, of this sort of thing, it's incredibly difficult to unpick who's given money to where and the, and the trail that it takes before it eventually reaches the pockets of the likes of Jack Warner. Yes, yeah, they are uh, they're a law unto themselves, FIFA, which as, as a charity, um, they can effectively make up their own rules. Mm. And that's what we've seen happen. Our final question today, Kieran, is one of my favourite <laughs> One of my favourite questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favourite. Somebody here has got something to get off their chest, and they they clearly have been banned from several local pubs for constantly asking this question. <laughs> and they've decided that the only way around it is to is to is to ask us. It just made me laugh so much. This question, and it, it comes from Ivor Noel. Uh, and Ivor's question is: Why? Oh, why? Oh, why? Oh, why? Have club pin badges dispensed with the traditional fastener? and opted for the inferior spike-and-push-on cap system. Surely it's not due to cost. Or is it that you're more likely to lose the blooming thing and you have to buy another one? Whatever the answer, <laughs> thanks for letting me vent my grievance on air. It's just, I just, I, I could just imagine if I either was a drinker in the Portsons and Graham Delano would go, oh my God, she loses one badge, and five years later, she's still going on about it. Um, it's, it's. I mean, I'm, I'm with Ivor on this one. She's, uh, she's absolutely right, but I... It could well be due to cost, Kieran, because you know the people who manufacture these things will look to cut costs as many, as much as, as as often as possible. Will they not? Yeah, ev- ev- all decisions ultimately come down to power and money. And as far as uh, the the sale of uh, pin badges are concerned, it would be linked to a financial issue. 
and the the manufacturers are looking to have methods which will reduce their costs and that's that's one way it potentially it could have been achieved it would simply have been um somebody will come up with an alternative method of uh you know producing pin badges and and if you can if you can save yourself five percent of the overall cost they'll go yeah that that works um and and we'll do it so the the fact that you end up with potentially an inferior product um i think with with the exception of uh, either you know i've not heard any other people complaining about it and unless this is you know unless we're sort of we're taking the the, the, the top off a, a bottle of uh, fizzy pop and it's all about to explode you know there's been a lot of very frustrated uh pin badge collectors who who have been privately moaning to themselves and now we could have a national cause on our hands oh we will there will be and is quite right there's 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 nothing worse it's particularly when you you I find it with little with charity badges because you you want to show off that you've given some money to this mm. particular charity and you look down and it's gone. Somebody else would have picked yeah. that up and would be getting the credit that I should be getting. Um, sorry about the the very loud ding there. I thought I turned it off and um, sadly <laughs> it's from the the WhatsApp group I'm I'm in that speculates on who will have been knocked out of Strictly Come Dancing last night, which is <laughs> <laughs> you're so rock and roll. It's, it's not. <laughs> It's not so as a yeah as a well-known South London hard man. It's not something I want to <laughs> want people to know about. Thank you, thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, that'd be very kind of you. And if you do so, you can get access to our chat community and our regular quizzes. We have another Discord thing coming up in a few weeks' time. And you can do all that by going to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. There are two Price of Football live shows coming up. We'll be at the Lowry Theatre in Salford on October the 22nd and the Royal Yacht on Jersey on November the 7th. There's still a few tickets available, not many, but you can get them by going to priceoffootball.com or to the venues themselves. And if you'd like to pre-order our new book, Unfit and Improper Persons, An Idiot's Guide to Owning a Football Club, so you get it as soon as it comes out on the 12th of October, which is Thursday, you can now get 30% off by using the code PRICEOFFOOTBALL30 at checkout when you order via bloomsbury.com. That's price of football 30, all in the big letters via bloomsbury.com. And if you'd like to buy one of our other books or get yourself a price of football t-shirt, you can also find details on that website, priceoffootball.com. We'll be back on Thursday, the same day. Oh, no, yeah, Thursday, yeah, the same day as the book comes yeah, out. Yeah. Um, uh, with a, a news pod, Kieran, I don't know what we're going to do without Southend and Scunthorpe. I'm... I'm it's going to be the shortest show of all it's time. It's going to be really short, isn't it? Um, in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell mm-hmm. before he scuttles off to see Brighton versus Liverpool. A little glimpse into the mentality of every football fan everywhere, Kieran. Is that I was one of the producers of I Got News for You is a is a huge Liverpool fan, uh, and obviously I was offering him my exhortations that they get three points today, and he went, "No, no," because. Uh, the referees that you know, we can't win. Current referee, I said no. But uh, this week of all weeks, you're going to get every every single decision. We'll go with Liverpool's way, but no, no, it won't work like that because referees will be so upset. We won't get anything. We won't get. He's, he actually said, "I'll be I'll be surprised if we get the first kick off." So it's like, okay, <laughs> the little the, we all think that way, Kieran. But um, I'm, yes. I'm I'm sure it'll be a cracking game, Kieran. But in the meantime, as I say, you've just got time for your customary farewell. Yes, just about. Yes, um, and, and I believe 
that some bookshops have been releasing copies of our book early. Yes. Uh, so uh, we've had a few a few pictures on social media already. Yes. So uh, yeah, we'll be we'll be we'll be investigating that. Yeah, and I, I hope you enjoy the book. We won't give the ending away. Um, but it was uh, Professor Plum in the conservatory <laughs> with the lead piping. Yeah, it, um, it, it, might, it might also be Kieran that I've 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 given all my free copies away. Those, so <laughs> it could be it could be that, unfortunately. <laughs> Yes, so, so thank you everybody for your support for the show. We, we genuinely appreciate it. We we gen, we enjoy the interaction and we do try to respond uh, you know, if, if at all possible. Um, there's, there's lots of ways of supporting the show and, and for the people at Patreon, we, we always have a bit of a giggle with you on, on Discord where, where we can say the things that we can't necessarily say on the show. Uh, although Producer Guy has had a word with both myself and Kevin to say, just because you say it on Discord, it still goes into the public domain. So apologies to Manager X, um, Director X, and Goat Y. Um, so uh, that, 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 that particular story was just, just, a, just an innocent, innocent discussion. Um, there's, there's another way to support the show, and, and that's, to, that's to go on to your, your app, which you use to download your podcast and to give us a review. Helps us in the charts, helps us to have a bit of credibility. Um, you can write whatever you want. You want to vent your spleen, you can vent your spleen with regards to pin badges. Or you could even say you would rather have the show presented by Thomas Tuchel and Prince William. I'm sure they those two have got nothing in common, have they, Kevin? I, I'm, 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 I'm trying to re- recall. I, I, I don't think so, Kevin. I feel like I'm being led down a potential... Bear trap here. It's like you know when you used to go to an away game, and you'd never been there before, and you'd you'd ask somebody, and they go, "Oh yeah, just follow me down this alleyway into this housing estate." (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye. I'm for the